0: For the Daily Princetonian, I'm Eden Deshoma. You're listening to Daybreak. This week, Daybreak's Vitus LaRue sat down with Princeton politics professor Keith Whittington. Whittington recently announced that he is leaving Princeton to teach at Yale Law School at the end of this academic year. In the interview, we cover his views on academic freedom, the Supreme Court, his future at Yale, and reflect on his over 25 years at Princeton. Listen in. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Could you start by introducing yourself with your name, current position at Princeton, and your future position at Yale
1: Law? Sure, I'm uh, Keith Whittington. I'm the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. And in the fall, I'll be a professor in the law school at Yale. So,
0: you have spent over 25 years at Princeton, moving from Catholic University two years into teaching. After spending the bulk of your career here, how would you say your focus and perspectives in academia have changed over the decades?
1: And over the 25 years at Princeton, why move to Yale Law now? (laughs) Uh, You know, it's a good question. So I've been here a long time. I think there's something exciting about trying to do something a little new and different. It does shake things up a little bit. Partially for me, my work has sort of evolved into integrating more with law school communities than was true at the beginning of my career. Um, they're an important part of my uh, broader scholarly community and a lot of people I, I talk to professionally and for my academic stuff. And so moving over to be full time in a law school and, and teach with them, I think has some advantages. Of the last few years, I've become more interested in um, some practical applications uh, associated uh, with some of the theoretical and historical work that I do. Um, and I think uh, Yale will be a good platform. Um, a law school is sort of an appealing place to really try to think through um, how theory meets practice. And, and not only the context of judicial doctrines, but also policies and regulations. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that I can do some uh, new things more easily there than I could do here. So, Princeton has sometimes been criticized for its environment
0: around free speech. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression ranks Princeton 187th in the country. Some students have pointed out that there have been few speaker shutdowns on campus as compared to other schools. What has your experience been with the free speech environment? Would you say that the ranking is an accurate reflection of the campus's free speech environment?
1: Um, Well, I mean, the ranking that FIRE produces is based partially on policies, partially on um, surveys of student impressions. I think from a policy perspective, um, Princeton's not bad. Uh, There's some stuff that FIRE thinks could be cleaned up, um, which I think is not unreasonable. Um, But I think on the whole, our policies are actually um, pretty good. I think, obviously, President Eisgruber has put a lot of emphasis on free speech, and so um, it has been an important theme on campus, and I think that kind of senior leadership on a university is very good. But clearly, a lot of students are still um, feeling real pressure, Um, and I think that pressure often comes from their peers. And so it's hard, it's a hard challenge to uh, improve that from a faculty perspective, because it's not really driven by faculty, it's not driven by policies on the books, Um, there's a limit as to how much you can affect the campus culture among students. But I think clearly there are some issues here. Unfortunately, that's not unique to Princeton, a lot of schools um, suffer similar problems, so as you say we 've not had a lot of incidents of student disruptions of speakers, for example, and we 've seen some of those high profile incidents in other places so that's uh, I think that 's positive. I hope that continues to be true, but I think there's a real sense that sort of on a day to day basis, people feel a lot of pressure to conform uh, here at princeton and um, you know that has lots of consequences, but among the consequences it has is potential effects on the willingness of people to speak up and voice different views from what most of their colleagues have.
0: Institutional neutrality has also come into increased focus as related to the subject of your speech. President Eisgruber has defended the right of individual university officials, including the president, to speak in their own capacities. Do you agree with Eisgruber on that point? And what are some of the risks involved in making institutional neutrality
1: preferable in your view? I think President Eisgerber and I have some differences on that. Um, He's adopted a posture that he characterizes as institutional restraint. Um, So, the goal of that kind of policy is to not speak up very often, but there are occasions in which um, he thinks um, it's particularly important for senior university officials to issue statements and speak out vocally. He also carves out um, some space that he thinks is appropriate for both himself but also other senior officials at the university to be able to speak in their personal capacities um, as opposed to their institutional capacity. As he notes, he has a scholarly reputation, scholarly expertise on certain issues, um, and he thinks it's appropriate to continue to speak out on those things he has a scholarly reputation connection to, but thinks of that as being a speech primarily in his own voice and not necessarily in the institution's voice. I think that's a very hard line to be able to walk in practice. Um, I think it's very hard to disentangle what uh, deans and presidents and provosts say in their own individual voice as opposed to the institutional voice. So I I tend to think that it's better for them to simply assume that everything they're going to be saying is really uh, speaking with institutional voice. And as a consequence, I think they have to be uh, much more cautious about what they're willing to say than would be true if they remained on the faculty um, as an individual faculty member without that kind of institutional responsibility. I also tend to think that the institutional restraint posture leaves too much space for uh, universities to be issuing statements on contested issues and, and I prefer something that is more neutral um, in general. The general principle of institutional neutrality is not widely adopted. Most universities do resist it, but I, I think it's a preferable uh, way for the university to approach these issues. Optimally, the university is a place where individual faculty, as well as students and other members of the campus community, can develop their own ideas, express their own opinions about things. Uh, you expect to see a lot of disagreement um, on those campuses, it's not necessarily the university's role then to take its own positions on those things. And the university's role is to host those debates, uh, not to be a participant um, in those debates. And I think once the institutions begin to stake out their own political positions, it, it will uh, affect how um, individuals on campus will feel welcome and fully um, part of the community in those campuses. Um, in some context, I think it has real serious chilling effects on those who might disagree. So for example, if you are an assistant professor looking to be promoted um, in your department, but your department starts issuing political statements and you find yourself in the political minority department, um, there's gonna be serious pressure to either conform yourself to the views of your uh, senior colleagues um, or uh, simply be silent. And that's just fundamentally, I think, an inappropriate situation to put faculty in. It's inconsistent with the goals and values and missions of a, of a university. And so I, I think universities would be in a better posture of, in general, they would refrain from that. I think our present moment with the debate around Israel and Gaza has highlighted some of the complications associated with this. The university has had a long period of issuing statements um, about all kinds of events. Um, and as a consequence, a lot of people expect the university to be issuing statements here, Um, universities feel cross-pressured about what it is they're going to issue, and as a consequence, they haven't made anyone very happy uh, with what they've done. And if they had instead staked out a consistent posture of institutional neutrality prior years, it'd be much easier to find a position that would be more widely acceptable um, in our current moment and would avoid some of the political conflict that universities have found themselves in.
0: In your blog, um, you've recently said that you seek to remedy deficiencies in, quote, free speech and ideological diversity at Yale Law. What are some of the steps that you seek to take at Yale to fill those gaps
1: that you cited? Well, so we mentioned to, to how Princeton's doing on its free speech, and Yale has some very high-profile issues um, of late. The law school, specifically, um, has had some very high-profile um, uh, speech problems of late. I'm hopeful that I can help contribute to a solution there. There's a lot of faculty I think who have been disturbed by some of the things that have happened on that uh, campus lately. They view it as inconsistent uh, with the kinds of values that the law school in particular is trying to foster. But I hope to join some colleagues there in, in trying to both model behavior that I hope students will engage in, but also try to um, help students think through the kinds of principles and concerns they ought to have on the free speech issues. But, you know, I think that's a sort of ongoing task. It's an ongoing task, I think, in most universities. It's, it's certainly going to be true at Yale um, as well. Yale Law School has also been a place um, in which there has not been a lot of political diversity um, on the faculty. I, to my knowledge, I'm the first right-of-center faculty member teaching constitutional law topics that Yale potentially has ever hired um, in its history. They have not had a, a person teaching uh, constitutional law Uh, from the political right uh, since the early 70s. So it's not a a faculty that has really uh, nurtured a wide range of opinions. Uh, It's particularly unfortunate, Yale, is a particularly important place among law schools. It trains a lot of future judges and politicians. It trains a lot of future law professors. So I think it's important for a place like that in particular to have uh, more diversity um, on its own faculty who are capable of thinking through the range of issues that are in front of us and, and help grapple with the kind of political environment we're in fact operating in. It's also true at Yale. I'll be um, setting up a academic freedom and free speech center. And so I hope to be doing a lot of work Um, on these kind of topics, not only for Yale in particular, uh, but hopefully for the country more generally. And what specifically do you think a
0: right of center viewpoint
1: brings to students at Yale? So one, I think it's useful to actually have somebody who is familiar to the students, who has right of center um, opinions in general. I think when you don't encounter very many people on your campus, I think particularly in faculty level, but in general, who have uh, quite divergent views uh, from your own, you tend to, I think, fall easily into having stereotypes of what those views look like. You're making inferences about what most people look like from what you see on cable television and social media um, and the like. It's important to be around people where you can see they're more well-rounded than you imagine. They hold more in common with you uh, than you imagine. Hopefully you can see more sophisticated versions um, of opposite political opinions. I think that will tend to make people more tolerant in general to the extent that they wind up countering those kinds of views. It certainly makes them better informed about what the range of views are. I think, particularly in a law school environment, part of what uh, you're training law students to do is be able to argue from a variety of positions on behalf of their clients and the legal environment more generally. We exist in a world in which uh, there are a lot of conservatives around. They have a lot of political power. The federal judiciary, among other judiciaries, has a lot of conservatives um, on it. It's really just uh, ill-service for the students at a law school Um, If you're not training them to think through and respect, be able to grapple with and manipulate kinds of conservative arguments that are going to be persuasive to the kinds of judges, for example, that they want to try to persuade. Obviously, faculty all the time try to do the best they can in exposing students to a wide range of views and make them understand them. But it's helpful to have people around who actually believe in them. (laughs) And and as a we will think about them differently, I think, can elaborate those positions um, a little more. Uh, than it would otherwise be the case. I think just from a teaching perspective of nothing else, it's in a a law school environment in particular, um, I think it's quite important to have the kind of diversity reflected that's relevant to the world around them. You are an expert in constitutional law and often a go-to
0: source on campus for understanding the courts. In 2021, President Biden appointed you to a presidential commission on the Supreme Court to interrogate reform topics like introducing term limits and expanding the number of judges on the court. The final report could be viewed as relatively inconclusive on specific recommendations on these issues. Where did you land on some of the questions the Commission considered, and would you consider there is a crisis of legitimacy in the Supreme Court, and how would you suggest resolving it?
1: So um, part of the mission that the uh, President gave to the Commission was to examine a range of policies, but not make recommendations. And so the goal was to study them, to try to think through what the relevant considerations were, and try to present them in a relatively fair manner so the president and other policymakers can be better informed about how to think about these issues, but without the report necessarily trying to push them uh, in particular directions on those issues. Um, I think we did that reasonably well and, and did try to lay down a wide range of views about um, how best to think about these things and try to highlight uh, for the president and others what were the uh, most important points they ought to be thinking about both for and against various kinds of proposals um, that are floating around and president biden when he was saying the commission had promised to make it a, a bipartisan commission um, he followed through on that and did appoint some conservative scholars and as well as some former judges to uh, the commission so we did have a range of views reflected on the commission, and I think the individual commissioners, um, some were much more supportive of some of the proposals than others. So I have publicly discussed some of my own individual views about uh, some of these issues. I find the idea of expanding the court to be an extraordinarily dangerous uh, proposition for maintaining a robust uh, constitutional democracy. Certainly other commissioners uh, think about that differently than, than I do. I think a lot of the other kinds of proposals that uh, we tried to talk through have more merit than than court packing does um, and are somewhat more viable, although I have my own concerns about some of those as well. Um, So one of the popular measures that does get sort of more bipartisan support um, in general is the idea of term limits for the judges. I don't think necessarily term limits are a bad idea. It's not obvious to me they solve many of the problems people are most concerned about with the court, and so they introduce a lot of new complications. They think it's hard to predict uh, what all the effects would be, and it's not obvious it actually solves any real problems. Um, And so I don't find myself very uh, eager to adopt um, term limits, but um, I also tend to think that they're not terrible uh, necessarily, but there's um, some real complications about how you design them and implement them. You're certainly right that the courts is is in a much more contested political environment than it once was. Public confidence is lower than it once was in the court. Um, the hostility uh, to the court, I think, is particularly heightened at the moment. Some of that is just a reflection. Something's happening to institutions more generally and not just political institutions. And so we see sort of across the board, uh, whether you're talking about um, corporations, media, universities, legislatures, or, or Uh, judiciary, um, that there's just declining public confidence in all those institutions. And that's partially a reflection of political polarization. Um, And so those who don't like most of the policy outcomes that are emerging from the court are particularly hostile to the court. And that was true when the court was issuing opinions that were more frequently um, in favor of the left. You had a lot of people on the right who were hostile to the court. And so we get that now too. I think it's it's not obvious how you rebuild uh, legitimacy in that environment. Uh, it's a challenge for all these institutions, including universities, as to how do you rebuild public support in this context. I think the court will, by nature, continue to be involved in very um, hot button political issues. It will issue decisions that a lot of people in the country um, are not going to like the outcomes of and that's going to lead to continued hostility to the court and so in some ways i think we will have to learn how to muddle through uh, with a court that is not universally held in high favor um, but is viewed with some hostility i think the justices should do what they can to try to make that better and that includes things like being as carefully reasoned as they can be about the nature of the arguments try to take the countervailing position seriously so they don't run off half-cocked and making decisions. I do think that it'd be useful for the court to have uh, its own ethics reform so that they avoid um, some of the sort of individual scandals that they're being attacked for uh, now. Um, some of those things will help, but I think there's just a limit as to how much you're going to be able to do uh, in our current polarized environment to uh, dramatically improve um, how the court is perceived. So,
0: as someone who has taught here for a long time, Do you think that concerns over great inflation that Dean Dolan has raised in recent years are legitimate?
1: I think there are concerns about great inflation. Um, I was a supporter of the great deflation policy that we adopted for a while, in part because the policy that the university was considering was basically going to bring Uh, grades into closer alignment with what we were already doing in the politics department. Um, So it seemed um, particularly reasonable to me that it was both reflective of what um, I thought was a reasonable thing to be doing and it would bring other departments more in line with our own practices. Uh, That policy was obviously very unpopular among the students. It was certainly unpopular with uh, some of the colleagues um, here in the university. So we've now um, abandoned that. Um, I think the consequence has been predictable that um, we've had grade inflation uh, recurring to a greater degree, and there seems to be very little interest in actually trying to hold it back um, at this point. Again, Princeton's not unique in this regard. That's true at lots of universities, true below the university level as well. One consequence of that is it just um, makes it very hard to distinguish when students are actually doing good work and when they're not doing uh, very good work. Um, so the signals are not very clear to the students about the quality of their work, not very uh, clear to outsiders about the quality of the work, and uh, I think we're sort of falling down on our job to some degree if we're not um, straightforward and honest with students about um, the quality of what they're doing. Um, and I think that, that part of what we're seeing here is, with high grades is a reflection of the fact that the students are very good. Um, and, and so that's a real element, we all take that into account and be aware of that. But I think partially we're just seeing genuine inflation as well and an unwillingness to um, grade uh, harshly. And that seems to be where we are as a culture. I think it's a colluded view of the majority of the faculty um, at the moment that they're more comfortable with that as well. So I think it's hard to dig out of it.
0: Other universities have been criticized for their administrative bloat. Have you noticed a proliferation in the administration in your time at Princeton? And if so, have you noted any effects on the academic environment?
1: Uh, there's no question <laughs> there is a uh, proliferation of administrators during the time I've been here. Um, and again, that's not unique to Princeton. It's true at all universities across the board. I think some of it's unavoidable. Um, the university is responding in part to uh, new needs that arise on campus. They're responding in part to a regulatory environment that requires um, administrators to deal with. There's just a lot of compliance and paperwork uh, requirements that are generated by... Federal regulations by accreditors and and others um, that sort of necessitate um, having a lot of administrators um, on campus. And so, you know, regardless of how one feels about that, some of that's sort of unavoidable. I think Princeton has become a more bureaucratic place during the time I've been here. Talking colleagues elsewhere, I think that's been the experience of a lot of faculty um, at a lot of different kinds of institutions. But it is striking how uh, when I arrived, Princeton felt like a very small place, a very informal place. Um, uh, not a lot of rules and the rules were pretty flexible it was very flat uh, administratively so um, you'd often talk to people at pretty senior levels about lots of decisions that's just not true now to nearly the same degree it's much more bureaucratic um, a lot more rules um, uh, a lot more layers of administration Um, some of that seems uh, probably useful, Um, some of it I'm more dubious of as to how helpful that is. You know, it's hard to say how much effect it actually has on the academic environment um, as such. I I tend to think that the administrative rules surrounding uh, teaching is not always helpful, that there's uh, a little too much that impinges on the kind of flexibility um, that faculty need in the classroom. I have particular concerns about some features of the administration that do, I think, directly impinge on classroom teaching. I think some of the the, um, administrative rules and activities surrounding um, harassment policies um, as they're applied to classroom speech is uh, too intrusive. Some universities, I think, have very serious problems in that regard. I don't think Princeton is as bad as a lot of universities are. Nonetheless, I think there have been real instances of administrators intervening into classroom conduct uh, in a way that's inappropriate and consistent with academic freedom. And I think all universities, including Princeton, are sort of struggling uh, with how to reconcile genuine academic freedom concerns with genuine concerns about how to um, identify instances of harassment and discrimination in the classroom. Um, I don't think we have that balance right um, yet, but I'm hopeful we can make better progress toward uh, figuring out how to reach a right uh, equilibrium on this. Okay, I have
0: one final question for you. Um, what will you miss most about teaching at Princeton, particularly as you are making this move from teaching undergraduates to law students?
1: Uh, well, I hope I continue to have some opportunity to teach undergraduates when I'm um, at Yale as well. I'll have a, a secondary appointment um, in the political science department that will sort of facilitate being able to do some teaching over there. But for sure, most of my teaching now will be with law students, and they're different than undergrads, um, uh, to be sure. And I, the things I'll miss most about Princeton are the colleagues and the students. Um, the students here, um, have been terrific to work with, both at the graduate level and the undergraduate level. Part of what kept me at Princeton um, uh, for a long time, I've had law schools I've talked to um, before about whether or not to move, um, but the thing that's always um, kept me here has been students. Um, I enjoy working with them. They do, do interesting things. You can have very interesting conversations and push them uh, to take ideas very seriously, and that makes it fun to teach the students. It makes the job much more enjoyable and interesting than it otherwise would be and so um, I'll miss that, Um, I'm confident that will also be true with students at Yale though, so it'll be um, uh, a little different but you know one of the things that's always been rewarding is not only dealing with students in the classroom but doing some of the independent work for example with the undergrads, um, those projects are often quite fascinating, it's great to be able to guide students through their first really serious uh, scholarly project Um, and so um, I'm sure I will wind up missing some of those opportunities um, as well.
0: Thank you so much for sitting down with yeah. me today. Yeah, no, my
1: pleasure.
0: You can read our analysis of this conversation at dailyprincetonian.com or at the link in our show notes. That's all for Daybreak Today. Today's episode was written by Vitus LaRue, sound-engineered by me, and produced under the 147th Managing Board of the Prince. Special thanks to Navon Demesia and Twyla Colburn for their help with this episode. Our theme was composed by Ed Horn, class of 22. For the Daily Princetonian, I'm Eden Tushoma. Have a wonderful day.